As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. An American president's success or failure depends in part on their chief of staff, whose work is largely behind the scenes. We speak with the author who literally wrote the book on the second most powerful job in the country's government. And trap music, a type of hip-hop known for ominous-sounding drones and tinny hi-hat rhythms, got its start in Atlanta more than 30 years ago. Today, it's flourishing in some unlikely places, including Argentina. First up, though. After two massive earthquakes rocked southern Turkey and northern Syria, at least 5,000 people have been confirmed dead, a number that's certain to rise. Rescuers are frantically working to find survivors while pulling bodies from the rubble. The first tremor of magnitude 7.8 struck near Gaziantep in Turkey on Monday. A second quake followed of magnitude 7.5 and was captured live by a Turkish television crew covering the initial wave of destruction. The damage has been extensive, unthinkable. Thousands of buildings have been leveled in an area stretching from Turkey's Mediterranean coast to deep in its interior, nearly 500 kilometers away. A rescue effort on this scale and in this part of the world is going to be an enormous effort, and the clock is ticking. The first earthquake hit Turkey at about 4 o'clock in the morning yesterday at local time. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. It was the biggest to hit Turkey since 1999. And people were asleep for the most part, which magnifies the number of casualties as buildings come down. The temperature in southeastern Turkey is quite cold, around freezing. So people who pulled themselves out of their buildings ended up on the street in freezing temperatures. Then you have to start worrying about how fast hypothermia sits in. To make matters worse, a second tremor struck nine hours later. It's hard to communicate the scale of the destruction with an earthquake of this size. Uh, Entire neighborhoods of cities are masses of collapsed floors and dust. In many cases, you have buildings that survived standing right next to buildings that came down and are now just rubble. And how do things look on the ground this morning? Rescue operations are still underway. They're still searching for survivors in the rubble. The consensus is that you need to find people within the first three days. And for the first quake, one and a half of those days have already elapsed. So hope for finding further survivors gets slimmer as time goes on. And hospitals are overwhelmed. In many places, the hospitals themselves have been damaged. Uh, The number of people who are being picked up and brought in is enormous. 
again, the temperatures are very low. They're expected to go below freezing tonight. Lots of people are sheltering in tents. The government has advised everyone to leave their buildings because in some cases, buildings are continuing to come down even a day after the initial shock. They may have been weakened or another tremor may arrive and abruptly buildings that appear perfectly safe from the outside will collapse. Just having lots of people trying to take shelter outside is a dangerous situation in cold weather where you can't deliver aid to everybody easily. The estimate of how many buildings were destroyed in the first quake is 2,800. But as we said, there continue to be more aftershocks, more buildings continue to come down. On this point of of buildings collapsing, is this what we would expect to see for an earthquake of this magnitude? Earthquakes bring down buildings everywhere. Poor countries have worse construction standards, and Turkey is a middle-income country, so its construction standards are worse than other places. However, Turkish building codes were dramatically improved after the big 1999 quake, and the government has a program that's been running ever since that quake to try to retrofit buildings, in some cases completely dismantle them and rebuild them or renovate them. They have managed to reconstruct 3.2 million residences, they say, but that is nowhere near enough in a country of Turkey's size. And a lot of these buildings don't meet standards. Exacerbating that problem, in 2018, the president of Turkey, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, passed an amnesty for people who had engaged in illegal construction in the intervening years. A lot of the buildings that have come down will no doubt turn out to be buildings that weren't up to code, that were built illegally, and that were granted amnesty under that program. And that may end up becoming a political problem for Erdogan. But for now, the government is is focused on the rescue operation. What has the response been like so far? There is a massive relief operation underway in Turkey right now. And the logistical response on the part of Turkish authorities has been huge. Turkey has the largest army in Europe. That army can be immediately enlisted to help. They've sent landing ships from the Turkish Navy that carry bulldozers, which can deploy those bulldozers very quickly to affected coastal areas, which is helpful because a lot of roads have been taken out. There is help pouring in from all around the world. Uh, Ten EU countries have sent search and rescue teams. Many other countries have pledged millions of dollars in aid, but getting aid to those regions is difficult. Some of the airports in the region have been knocked out. Cell phone service has been knocked out in the region. Turkey is used to these kinds of emergencies. They have a large government. It's a well-governed country in many ways, and they're engaging in a full-bore response. And what about the situation on the other side of the border in Syria? I imagine that the response is not quite so coordinated there. In Syria, this is a horrific tragedy. That country has been devastated by civil war for more than a decade. That region, which was hard hit, is the worst affected region by the civil war. The hospitals that people are being delivered to now are hospitals that were deliberately targeted by Russian airstrikes during the civil war. People there, when they felt the quakes and heard buildings start to come down, assumed that it was bombing again because they've gotten so used to that over the course of the last decade. In some areas, there's effectively no government. There are rebel areas that are held by what's left of the Syrian opposition. Some of those are occupied by Turkey. There are areas that are controlled by Kurdish opposition groups called the YPG. There are areas that are contested between the Syrian regime and the rebels. Even areas that are actually held by the Syrian regime have extremely limited infrastructure and governance at this point. This is not an area that is well-equipped to handle a major natural disaster. Just delivering supplies to that area is difficult. 
if you are getting to areas that are held by the regime, they will have to come in through Damascus, which is quite some ways away. If you're in the region that is occupied by the Turks, then they'll have to come in through Turkey. But Turkey has enough of in its mind handling its own side of the disaster and won't be able to do as much as it might to help areas across the border. And areas like the Kurdish-controlled region, which fortunately wasn't hit quite as hard as others, are extremely difficult to reach. You can't get there through regime-controlled areas because the Syrian regime opposes those groups. You can't get there from the Turkish side because the Turkish regime violently opposes those Kurdish groups. So it's really kind of a nightmare to reach them. So you think those political differences will manifest themselves in in the response here, hamper the response here, rather than provide a, a, a reason to work together for once? The divide between the Turkish government and the rebel Kurdish groups is so vicious and so long-lasting that it seems very unlikely that they will be able to cooperate with each other very effectively, even in the aftermath of a disaster like this. And the Syrian government has been engaged in all-out war against its own population in those opposition areas, dropping bombs in populated areas for the last decade. It doesn't seem very likely that they will be interested in helping out either. So clearly the immediate search and rescue operations are going to be fraught and these numbers are going to rise. How do you see this playing out in the long term, though? The areas on both sides of the border where these earthquakes have hit were both facing tremendous economic challenges already. Turkey has extremely high inflation. And this region of Turkey is already one of the poorest areas in the country. The devastation of infrastructure in that region is not going to help. On the Syrian side, this is an area which, as we said, has faced 10 years of civil war. Electricity blackouts were already running to 22 hours a day in some places this winter. There are shortages of fuel. This is going to exacerbate all of that. The political consequences in the long term are important. Natural disasters make a difference in the way that people view their government. Turkey is a struggling democracy, but it's still a democracy. It faces elections in a few months. If the government is not seen to have responded well to this natural disaster, that will lead to a lot of public anger and could affect President Erdogan's chances at staying in power. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. President Joe Biden will deliver his second annual State of the Union address tonight. Democrats hoped he'd use the speech to boast about his achievements and America's robust economy. But he's taking flack from Republicans and some Democrats over his handling of the Chinese balloon affair last week. That's nothing unusual. Reality often makes a hash of political plans. To cope with a massive, ever-shifting intray, presidents rely on their chiefs of staff. For two years, Biden has relied on Ron Klain, who he's known since the 1980s. But Klain recently handed the job off to Jeff Zients, an accomplished businessman with far less political experience than his predecessor. This is the best job I've ever had. (laughs) And even though it's also the hardest job I've ever had, I will miss this job, our work, this mission, and most of all, this team every single day. 
but I take solace in knowing that I am leaving you in the best of hands. But what does a presidential chief of staff really do? Chris Whipple is an author who literally wrote the book on the subject, called The Gatekeepers. His most recent book, about the first two years of Biden's presidency, is called The Fight of His Life. I think Ron Klain has got a full plate of challenges that he's got to help prepare Jeff Zients to face. You can argue that he and Joe Biden faced the most daunting array of problems since uh, FDR's time, a once-in-a-century pandemic, a crippled economy, a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you could almost say now comes the hard part because uh, you have an octogenarian president uh, running for re-election, a hostile Republican House that's out to sink him, uh, a continuing war in Ukraine, the threat of a recession, inflation still not under control. So Ron Klein's going to be trying to help Jeff Zients uh, hit the ground running. Chris, for our non-American listeners, and perhaps for our non-political junkie listeners who are American, what does a White House chief of staff do? Well, you know, it's hard to overstate the importance of the White House chief of staff in every uh, presidency. Every president learns often the hard way that he cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief to uh, execute his agenda and, most importantly, tell him what he doesn't want to hear. Ron Klain was an essential part of Joe Biden's success in his first two years, and he was there for all of his failures as well. But the White House chief, he has to have White House experience. He has to have knowledge of Capitol Hill, political savvy, managerial acumen, and a first-class temperament. Those people don't grow on trees. Uh, Ron Klain was one of them, and it'll be a big test for Jeff Zients. Does the president have to like his chief of staff? Yes, I think he does. There's this famous expression that Richard Nixon used about his infamous White House chief of staff, H.R. Bob Haldeman. The chief has to be the president's pluperfect son of a bitch. <laughs> well, that was a colorful expression, but it's never really been true. You know, it's certainly possible that Nixon didn't like Haldeman all that much, but you really cannot succeed as president without having a real reliance and I think some respect for your chief of staff. To your mind, who has been the most successful or the best chief of staff? Who has been the least and why? I would say that the gold standard for White House chief of staff has always been James A. Baker III under Ronald Reagan. There would have been no Reagan revolution, in my view, without Jim Baker. Leon Panetta under Bill Clinton would have to be in that company because I don't think there would have been a second term for Bill Clinton without him. I think you have to put Ron Klain almost in that elite company because Klain had all of those qualities I talked about, which are so rare, which Baker and Panetta also shared. On the other side of the ledger, there used to be a stiff competition for worst chief of staff in history. And Reagan's Don Regan, who succeeded Jim Baker, was certainly right up there. But they've all been left in the dust by the undisputed titleist for worst chief of staff, and that is Mark Meadows under Donald Trump. The most important duty of any White House chief of staff is the ability to walk into the Oval Office, close the door behind you and tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. 
Mark Meadows was utterly incapable of that. That was his ultimate major failing. The once in a century pandemic happened on his watch and he was all in helping the boss pretend that it wasn't happening. That alone would have made him the worst chief of staff, but there followed an attempt to overthrow a free and fair election. Now, you told us earlier what sort of chief Ron Klain was. Do you think he maybe put in the Pantheon next to Baker and Panetta? But you spent a lot of time with him for your book. I'm curious what he's like as a person. Did you like him? Klain is a guy whom you like to be around. Certainly, you have to have an ego to be in that kind of a position, but that's certainly very well disguised. He's a very smooth operator. When I visited Klain on a Saturday afternoon at the White House, Joe Biden was traveling in Europe. We sat on the patio outside his office in the West Wing and we talked. He confided that this was nine months into Biden's presidency at a real low point where Biden was unable to pass his major legislation. The bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill were both sputtering and Build Back Better was about to crash and burn. And he told me that he was thinking about quitting nine months in. That's how relentless and grueling and thankless the White House chief of staff job can be. And he was exhausted, but he decided to stay up to the two-year point so that he could help see uh, Joe Biden through the midterm election. This job kind of sounds like hell on earth to me. Is it a job you would ever want? (laughs) I'm not sure I'm cut out for it. But here's the irony. I, I mean, I can tell you that for all of its thanklessness, you get all of the blame for things that go wrong, none of the credit for things that go right. Dick Cheney, who was a, believe it or not, a terrific chief of staff to Gerald Ford when he was only 34 years old, Cheney, blamed it for triggering his first heart attack. For all that, I know I've spoken to every living White House chief of staff, and I don't know a single one who would say that he wouldn't do it all over again. It's that kind of privilege to have the second most powerful job in government. And Ron Klain loved the job. Chris Whipple, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks. If you've been on the internet recently, chances are you've heard Shakira's new hit song. The breakup anthem broke records. Its video on YouTube reached 100 million views in just three days. Some of that meteoric success is thanks to the track's producer. So the producer of Shakira's new song is called Gonzalo Julian Conde, and he's topping charts. Ana Lancas is our Argentina correspondent. He's a 24-year-old Argentine DJ known by a stage name Bizarra, and he's got more than 6 billion views on YouTube that he's amassed since 2017. And last year, he became one of the top 50 artists on Spotify, the world's biggest music streaming platform. And though his hit with Shakira is actually a pop song, he's kind of become very successful in a genre known as trap, along with new Argentine artists. How would you describe trap music to people who've never heard it? So it's like a cousin or subgenre of hip hop. And it was developed by African-American producers in Atlanta people like Toomp and Shoddy Red in the late 1980s and early 1990s. It was popularized by American artists from poorer neighborhoods. The name actually alludes to trap houses where drugs are sold. 
The genre includes artists like Gucci Mane and 21 Savage and Young Thug. The defining sound of trap is the hi-hat burst that you produce on the cymbals that are part of the drum kit. That hi-hat sound is no longer exclusive to trap. It's found its way into lots of genres, from reggaeton to pop. And the term trap has actually become so elastic that it's used to describe many songs that aren't, strictly speaking, trap anymore. So here are two examples of Bisarap songs with lots of hi-hats. This one is with Snow the Product, an American rapper. Hola, what's happening? No cap in my caption. And this one is with Duki, an Argentine trap artist. And why has trap become popular where you are in, in Argentina? What's the connection? So it's actually swept the entire hemisphere and artists in Latin America have kind of put their own spin on it. Latin trap, which has its roots in Puerto Rico. There was like a, a mix of American trap with reggaeton and pop influences. And it became popular in Argentina in the mid 2010s when there was a burst of freestyle rap concerts organized across Buenos Aires, the capital. And that coincided with a government program that provided a free laptop for every student at public secondary schools. And though those laptops did not improve exam results, they did allow some board students to record their first songs. But unlike American trap, which often deals with drugs and violence in poor neighborhoods, there are a lot of middle-class kids in Argentine trap. And so they're often singing about things like designer brands and symbols of money. So for example, there was an analysis of almost 700 songs by the 20 biggest Argentine trap artists. And the figures they mentioned most were Lionel Messi, the footballer, God, Robin Hood. But they also talked a lot about brands like Nike and Ferrari. Can you give us a sort of tour of Argentine rap? Who are the artists putting it on the map? So I think the one that's been maybe most successful outside of Argentina has been Nikki Nicole. She went on the Jimmy Fallon show. She has her own Tiny Desk concert. Then you've had a list of people who are not strictly speaking necessarily just trap artists, but have done collaborations and also found some fame in the genre like Maria Becerra, a singer-songwriter. But by far, the undisputed king of Latin trap has become Bad Bunny. He's from Puerto Rico. And he's been Spotify's most streamed artist for three years in a row. And as these artists find a global audience, do you think that rise tells us something about Latin music's appeal more widely? Absolutely. The rise of Argentine musicians and producers is part of a broader globalization of Latin music. For example, in 2016, not a single Spanish language song made the top 50 most played on Spotify that year. And last year, there were 13 songs. And in 2021, the recorded music market grew by 31% in Latin America, far above the global average of 18.5%. So according to GWI, a market research firm, Latin Americans lead the world in the time they spend streaming songs. They stream music for an average of almost two hours a day. So I think this is just the beginning for Argentine trap, and we can expect Latin music to keep growing. 
All right, Anna, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.